Amen. Thank you, guys. Before we get into the, the passage today, I have a, a big thank you just for all of you for praying. We, uh, we were able to cross a couple of really big uh, prayer requests off of our list today, or rather we relabeled them as, as answered, which is just an enormous blessing. So the first is um, about two weeks ago, my wife Sydney and I got to travel out to Chicago for the Send Network Church Planter Assessment. They put you through rigorous sort of testing and evaluation, and you're there supported by, uh, we had an elder from our church come out with us. We had uh, the Send Network representatives from Nebraska with us, so it felt like we were really uh, supported, and they greenlit us to receive you know, their counsel and support throughout, but also their funding from the Send Network. So that was a huge blessing. And it's interesting, they asked me what I thought of it afterwards, and I said, I didn't know I could be cooked on that many sides. Um, but it was, it was a joy to go there, and I thank you all for praying. And the other uh, huge update is we were approved to be using the um, Nebraska Communities Playhouse for the plant. So I know you guys were praying for that two weeks ago. We made the announcement. They were voting on it. Not enough people showed up to the meeting to, uh, to have a meeting, so they said we're doing it over email, which is always worse if you guys have tried that before. Um, but it was, it was amazing. They approved, and so now we've got this Google Doc with all of our, our things that we're praying for, and it's amazing to go into that document and just say, answered, approved on this day. It's a huge blessing. So thank you so much for that. Um, we're actually in a series right now called The Compelling Community, and we're going through different aspects of you know, what does it mean to really live uh, as the church in a Christ-centered community. And so Brad teed us up two weeks ago. He talked about discipleship. Uh, then Dean came out here last week talking about what binds us together. Uh, it's nothing cultural, it's nothing societal, but it is uh, the gospel itself. No matter uh, who we are, where we're from, what language we speak, where we are on the socioeconomic spectrum, we are bound uh, by the gospel and we need nothing else to bind us. Um, today's passage is going to be Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36 and going through verse 50. And today we're looking at the topic of how should we interact with others in light of the gospel. And I think this is an amazing passage to sort of analyze that uh, through the lens of. So if you look in your Bible, some of them, or at least they used to call this the sinful woman. Um, but I think a, a better title for this passage would be the forgiven woman. I know my mind calls it um, the sinful woman forgiven. So the cat foot in both camps. Uh, but I'll go ahead and start in verse 36 here. One of the Pharisees asked him, him being Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, 
Say it, teacher. So let's pause right there. We've got some characters who've been introduced. First, we have Jesus. Um, let's look at the woman and Simon. First, the woman, it says she's a woman of the city. This is a euphemism for, she's basically a, a prostitute. Euphemism being, you don't necessarily want to say what she is, but you want to communicate it so you don't use the same words. Like when I was 12 years old and my dad was like, hey, let's go to IHOP and talk about the birds and the bees. And the nature lover in me was really excited. And then we got to IHOP and I was less excited uh, significantly. Um, that's what this is, uh, a woman of the city. And it's as if the author, uh, Luke here, wants to make sure that it's communicated that she is a very sinful woman. Um, and so he, he sort of piggybacks of the city with uh, who was a sinner, like in case you had any question about this is a, a sinful woman. And it's not like a mildly sinful woman. This isn't your like dime a dozen sinner. This is actually a career sinner, meaning all the money this woman makes more than likely uh, is from prostitution. Um, and then on the other side, we have Simon the Pharisee. And we shouldn't get him confused with uh, any other Simon in Scripture. Uh, we have no indication that this Simon is, is related or, uh, or is any other Simon. So just Simon the Pharisee. And I think R.C. Sproul has a, a great quote to sort of summarize Simon's mindset here. So what he says is, uh, Simon, like all the Pharisees, believed very strongly in the doctrine of salvation by segregation, meaning that the act of this woman, this sinful woman coming into his home is wrecking his holiness. And what is Jesus doing but letting this woman honor him at his feet? So he's very angry about this. Um, but Jesus turns to him, and what he does is he reveals a parable to him. So let's, let's uh, start back up again. This is verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the largest debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, before we dig into what the passage is saying, I think it's important just to right off the bat, uh, pause and to say what it's not Saying So the passage is not trying to communicate uh, that salvation is through works or through some kind of emotionalism. So this is not Christ looking at this woman saying, I accept your gifts, 
you're in. Uh, you've, you've satisfied me, and, and you're now granted um, access to the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations. That's not what this is saying whatsoever. It's also not saying that you need to exhibit a certain degree of sort of emotional expression and that God views that, and that's a barrier to your salvation. And I see that as a pitfall a lot of times in, uh, you know, if you go to sort of a revivaly uh, retreat or conference or a big altar call, this is big in like youth ministry um, where people start to feel this spiritual high and they think if that fades, they've lost some of their salvation. I just want to say right off the bat that this passage is really, really clear that this woman's sins are forgiven through her faith. Uh, and by the grace of God, not anything to do with the works that she's performing, although she is performing great and marvelous uh, works for Jesus here. But let's look back to the parable. So it's not so much about conversion necessarily, because we see both of these debtors are bailed out. What it's really trying to communicate here is that we will love Christ more the deeper we realize the burden that he removes from us and takes upon himself. So in this passage, we really have, as sort of a grand uh, macro view of the Gospels, everyone's asking themselves two questions. Um, The first is, who is Jesus? And then why is he here? He's got everyone's attention. I mean, from the Roman officials to, uh, to the Pharisees, to the sinners, everyone's looking at Jesus. And if you look back a little ways in chapter 7, he's just uh, basically raised a widow's son from the dead. So you don't do that without attracting a little bit of attention. And everyone is asking these questions. Who is Jesus? Why is he here? What's this Jesus guy all about? So we should look at what, uh, what, do, what is the woman and what does Simon believe here? And we can see this revealed uh, through how they react to Christ. Um, Simon does not greet Jesus with a kiss, which would have been cultural, not something we do anymore. So it takes us off guard a little bit. But he doesn't greet Jesus with a kiss. Um, He doesn't even provide a a basin for Jesus to sort of wash off his feet as he gets into the home. Now, an honored guest would have uh, the man of the house basically come and wash their feet as a servant would just to honor them greatly. And yet this man does none of that, doesn't even give him water. So Jesus basically walks into this guy's house off the street uh, completely filthy. And then on the other hand, we have just the polar opposite. This woman comes, and she comes with her her bottle of ointment. It sounds as if she comes as soon as she knows where Jesus is, where she has sort of this, this possibility, maybe I can run into Jesus. Maybe I can meet this man. And she somehow gets past the gatekeeper of this home and throws herself at the feet of Jesus. And it's as if she's planned on anointing his feet. It's as if that's why she's there, um, to gain forgiveness of her sins. And as she's anointing his feet, she notices that they're dirty. And she's overwhelmed with who she is in the presence of, and she begins to weep. And this is not a misty-eyed cry. This is what we would, in our society, some of us call ugly crying, um, where you are just all in, your tears are streaming from your face. She's flooding the feet of Jesus uh, with her tears. And it's as if she sort of yanks hair uh, from her bound-up hair, and she starts to scrub his feet, cleaning them. And she submits herself to him in kissing his feet even. It's just the pinnacle of reverence 
versus the Pharisee who just really doesn't seem to care. And it's interesting, too, to just look what this woman is not doing. So if we look at the life of Jesus and his miracles and everything like that, people are constantly asking him for stuff. Jesus, we're out of wine. We need some food. We're hungry. I need healed. Uh, Can you please raise this person from the dead? Uh, They're always asking him for things. And this woman doesn't say a word. But Jesus sees her heart. He sees that she's there for maybe the biggest miracle of all, which is the forgiveness of her sins. Taking her actions as evidence, she seems to have a remarkable grasp on both who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And I love one thing about what this, if we're looking back at this parable, what it sort of points out to us. Um, some people might look at this parable and say like, well, you know, yeah, some people don't have any debt and, or a little bit of debt and some people have a huge sin debt. Um, there's no, I don't owe that much debt. That's, that's not a thing. Either we understand the magnitude of our sin's disgrace in the eyes of a holy God, uh, or we do not. The amounts that Jesus gives within this parable are really significant because he's basically saying uh, you either owe like three or four years wages or 10 to 20 years wages. These are massive amounts uh, of debt. The gospel itself, no matter how holy you might think you are, um, it's not saying, hey, did you forget your wallet? I, I got lunch. It's on me. This is particularly challenging, I would say, to me in general as a parent. Um, And in my conviction as a parent, because I think one of the biggest challenges is how do we raise our children in the refuge of Christ within our home and still help them to understand the weight of their sins and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And for me, within these last few years of ministry, I have brought in and shepherd so many men who are in a stage of their life where they have children. They're still pretty young, but they've, they've started families. And many of them have grown up in Christian households. And I'm not saying Christian households where they have parents who were one way at church and then they're frauds at home. I'm talking about faithful parents within the household. Many of them went to uh, Christian schools. Many of them were homeschooled in God-fearing, Christ-exalting homes. Many of them even went to uh, Christian colleges and universities, and yet they're coming to me and we're talking about these things, and they're saying, Sam, I I have no desire to read the scriptures. I have no desire to uh, pray with my family, and I don't know why. Like, why? I've been raised in this my entire life. And then on the other hand, I interact with these people, and they're often co-laborers with me, They're also doing ministry work, often in the college level, and they have a completely different background. Like, they've been raised by atheists. They went to a highly secular, um, almost anti-God universities, and yet they have this unwavering faith in this, like, rock-solid understanding of the gospel. And the more I spoke to these two different parties, and by the way, I see myself as the first party. I was raised in a pastor's home, very much sheltered, loved, living under the umbrella of Christ's uh, grace throughout my entire upbringing. But the biggest difference was that some of them understood the weight of their sin 
and Christ's finished work through that, and some of them simply did not understand that they bore a heavy weight that Christ had removed from them. And I don't have a silver bullet on this as to how to communicate this well um, to children or to anyone else who's having trouble understanding, or maybe you're having trouble understanding. But I do have a scripture to share with you all that helped me. And in this scripture, we basically have, uh, it's Hebrews chapter 12, by the way, starting in verse 18. Uh, We have two sort of mountains juxtaposed against one another. And on one side, we have Mount Sinai, which is where the Lord came down and he, he gave the Mosaic law, what we call it, uh, to Moses. And it's this very dark scene because there's a heavy emphasis on what do our sins look like under the backdrop of a holy and perfect God. And on the other side, we have Zion, which represents the new covenant of Jesus Christ and his finished work. And so I'm going to read this passage And this is what really helped me to grip this and to understand. So starting in verse 18 of Hebrews 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And it's as if this woman that we're reading about, even though this is decades before the book of Hebrews was written, she's walking sort of metaphorically between these two mountains, and she can see Sinai with clarity. She knows enough of the Mosaic law to know that she is not in a good spot. She's not a a scholar. She maybe doesn't know the scriptures super well, but she understands that when you put a prostitute uh, right in the face of an almighty God, uh, that's not a good thing. But it's as if she looks to the other side And she doesn't see this with full clarity because at this point, Christ's finished work is not totally done, but she can see enough that it draws her to it. She can see enough of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's come to do, enough to believe and enough to run to him and fall at his feet. It's as if she has lived years and years of her life believing that there's only doom that there is only gloom and that she's in big trouble once she meets Christ or meets God face to face. And now here she is at the feet of the God of the universe. And it brings me back to if this woman, not knowing 
really all of the great works that Christ is going to do. She hasn't even, she doesn't even know about the resurrection. She doesn't even know about the crucifixion yet. This is prior to, to all of those things. And if this woman is still drawn to Christ, how much more should you and I be drawn to Christ knowing with clarity what he did for us, knowing that the God of the universe through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came down to earth. He dwelled among us. He, he counseled us. He taught us. He suffered among us. He died on a cross for our sins, and three days later, he conquered sin and the grave, and he rose again victoriously. And knowing that, how much more should this mean to all of us? I like the way that Jesus handles her sins. So now she's standing in the face of mighty God, Jesus Christ. And he says to the Pharisee, but referring to her, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. He doesn't minimize her sin. This is always a temptation. Well, it's, it's not that bad. He doesn't do that. He doesn't minimize the sin. He doesn't minimize evil. He doesn't minimize the fallen nature of the world. He just emphasizes the power of himself and the work that he came to accomplish. So, back to what we're talking about today. What does this mean for community? It might seem to catch you off guard. That might seem like a swift transition. But within the working nature of this text, there are some amazing things that Jesus Christ is telling us about how we should treat other people who we live among. Now, the first is the lost. So view the lost as those who Christ would pursue. I love in verse 48, where he, he turns to the woman, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, before he was talking to the Pharisee, he says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And then he pauses and he turns to the woman and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. I mean, imagine the weight of, first we have, if I were to tell you guys all, I love my wife. You're like, great. Doesn't mean much to me. But if I turn to my wife and I say, I love you, that takes on a whole different meaning, doesn't it? Jesus turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. And it's as if he's also saying, you came here wondering if I was who they say I am. And I'm telling you right now that I'm everything you imagined and infinitely more. And when we look at this woman and how she's treated by the Pharisee, we see a very different way of treating people. So the Pharisee doesn't say a word to this woman, but he makes it known she's not welcome here. And he makes Jesus know, basically, through his, his thoughts at least, that he thinks less of Christ because he would accept this woman. In other words, from the minute this woman walks in, the Pharisee is saying, she's one of them. You're really going to accept her? She's one of them. Why would you do that? And it's as if Jesus, through saying, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, no, she's not one of them. She's one of mine. To the unsaved, to the struggling Christian, you might be thinking this. You might be saying, no, I'm, I'm one of them. 
I'm, I'm only a sinner and nothing more. I don't fit in. I don't fit in at church. I'm not happy all the time. I don't have this, this thing that everyone else has. I feel like I'm totally empty of that and I'm never going to get there. Well, if you have repented of your sins and followed Christ, you are one of his. So we need to ditch the Pharisee mindset here. Now, this is a swift transition. Raise your hand if you've seen The Office. Both of you. Oh, wow, that's like half. Okay. So, Jesus did not send us here. We were not created to make the world the Finer Things Club. Finer Things Club is like this, basically it's making fun of uh, clubs that happen at, at corporate businesses that meet during the day and are kind of lame. But there's this one club in the office called the Finer Things Club, and they don't let very many people in. It's the most exclusive club. And they eat finger sandwiches, and they talk about literature, and they, they pretend to be fancy for a minute. And it, it doesn't take much for church people like us to try to make things the finer things club. So our, our Bible studies or our community groups or even our church Sunday services to think like, well, you know, this is, this is kind of for a certain, a certain type of person. Um, that's not what Christ's intention for us was. If we are the body of Christ, the answer of how we should react to the lost is clear. We must seek the lost that they, might, that they may be saved. There's something else that Jesus points out through his actions in this passage. And it's how we should react to the legalist. Notice the love that Christ pours out even to the Pharisee, who's basically a a modern-day legalist. He's someone who is like, hey, I know more than you, I know better than you, and I am better than you from the way that that I'm acting. And I'd like you to know it. All churches have legalists, except for Country Bible Church. There are no legalists here. I, want you, I just want you guys to know that. I've been here for four months, I know, okay? Um, there's none here, but some churches have them. And look at Jesus, look how he interacts with them. Uh, the, the Pharisee comes in, he's very disrespectful to Jesus. He accuses Christ of fraud, basically. He's saying, you say you're the son of God, um, yet I don't even think you're a prophet. I just think you're a fraud. Uh, Jesus responds to him in grace, and at the same time, he directly rebukes what the Pharisee is saying. So he explains something difficult to the Pharisee that he knows the Pharisee doesn't understand through an easy-to-understand story. And his response to the Pharisee so softens the man's heart that he kind of uh, gives in. And the Pharisee, at the end of the parable, answers, well, yeah, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And when the Pharisee's heart softens, Jesus actually seems to encourage him. He says, huh, you've judged rightly. So challenging as it may be, uh, directly rebuke, yet gently steer um, and, and educate and love the legalist. And then this one is short and sweet, but it's how we view ourselves if we're saved as children of God. And it's define yourself not as a legalist who needs no grace or as merely a sinner who is hopeless of grace, 
but as a member of the body of Jesus Christ who day by day walks in his grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful today, not only for the sacrifice made by the service members, uh, all the servicemen to give their lives for our country, but in your son Jesus Christ that he gave his life that we may be saved from our sins. We pray, Lord, that you would sear us in our faith rightly, that we would look to you and all things, that we would not wander into legalism and we would not wander into despair, but that we would look to you in all things and that we would hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you so much. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Your benediction today is from Ephesians 3, 17 and 19, or 17 through 19. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You are dismissed.